Lord be with you, Bread of Life. Today is the fourth Sunday in Advent as we come in our journey uh, to Christmas, to the birth of Christ. And so we're in waiting, we're in anticipation of the Lord. Uh, begin with this quote. History begins with the vanity of kings. Now that comes from the beginning of a textbook from the 1920s. The textbook was about Neo-Assyrian kings. Yeah, nothing you're probably all that interested in. Esar Haddon and these kings of the 8th and 9th centuries BC. But they're significant, as you can maybe anticipate, because this is David's era. This is Solomon's era. It's very close. And he's getting at something we know about these ancient histories. History begins with the vanity of kings. The story of the Old Testament is in many, many ways told through the righteousness and the failings and the vanity of its kings. And David's at the center of that. He's no exception. He's a teacher in his story. He, he's a repository, a vehicle for Israel and the church to pass down traditions and lessons and faith. And so we meet David today in the fourth Sunday of Advent. But I want to step away from David for a minute to set this up for us a bit in light of last week. I introduced Henry Nouwen. So he's this spiritual writer of mostly of the last century. And he was trying to help us understand, he's trying to diagnose why among our people, and he's often writing to pastors, the gospel and the, and the good news don't have traction. They don't convince, they don't comfort those who are in suffering. And now it goes on to try and diagnose that and try and give some reasons. And the first one we dis discussed last week is that we no longer feel ourselves to be caught up in a, in a cosmic history, in a single history of the world. Our history has become um, fragmented. You know, in prior centuries, there was this idea of providence, that God is ordaining the world on its path, and we're caught up in that and confronted by it and called into responsibility within it. But in the modern world, that's hardly true. We feel ourselves um, caught up in the stories and many tellings of history, and that dislocates us. Nowen says, it can depress us, it can isolate us. So the second thing he lists for us today that we come to, he says that we're morally rootless, or he says we're morally fragmented. Our values, our beliefs don't cohere, they don't um, hold themselves together as they once did in previous centuries when there was a moral lawgiver and the, the belief in one. Could just demonstrate this in, in two ways. Um, think about your own beliefs um, about political issues today, you know, immigration, abortion, uh, sexual issues, uh, the freedoms of government, the rights of government, the freedom of religion, um, uh, the, the rights to medicine, the rights to education, um, the rights to a minimum wage. I mean, all these kind of moral issues that we develop opinions around, mask wearing or not mask wearing, um, distancing or not distancing. We make moral decisions about these. But if we're honest, very few of us sit down and build a moral framework. You know, we go back to the ancient philosophers and the ancient theologians and say, let's define justice and rights very carefully. Let's build a structure that will help us make decisions about these complicated issues. We don't do that. Um, none of us. I'm, I'm among them. You know, I, I, I try and think in this way, but we're all prone to something else. And the social scientists say that the chief way, if we're observed, um, that we make decisions about moral issues is our social surroundings. Uh, social scientists sometimes call this social warmth, or others will call it the warmth of tribalism. 
Um, we long, we are social characters. We're characters who long to be liked. And so we gravitate to people who are like us or whom we want to be like. So sometimes described this way, I would like to be this kind of person and not that kind of person. And that feeling, that desire and sense of belonging is what will drive what we believe about certain issues. And then we're smart. We know how to kind of come up with reasons that we believe those things. Um, but it's not a consistent framework. It's not this thing that coheres and holds together in a kind of moral order. And that's what now ends kind of getting at. It's, it's disruptive to our human experience. A few weeks ago, I sent some videos to us before the election from a friend of mine, um, a political scientist in our diocese who consults and works in Washington, D.C. And he tells this comical story of our political parties, the right and the left and the Democrats and the Republicans. And he says, you know, the, the way these parties came to represent values is anything but a consistent framework of beliefs. It's this odd sort of bumbling history. The Republicans who once were for labor and for the people, and yet the Democrats end up with the unions and, and, and vying and, and people voting for protections of labor with the Democratic Party. Um, in the Reagan era, we pick up this idea of this open and free economy that belongs to the Republican Party and is defended by them more or less. And, and the breakdown of these things is arbitrary in so many cases, which makes it so difficult to vote. But it's the aligning of these peer groups and social groups. It's not consistent in very, um, almost very few ways. Yeah, we're morally fragmented people. That's who we are. And so Advent calls us into that moment, and I suggest it calls us into that moment through David. David is this way to enter into our moral life. So I'll just do this in three um, kind of quick ways. Introduce the origins of the kingship and David. Then um, Psalm 89 and the fate of the kingship. And then come back to David and what he teaches us. So the, the origins of kingship. Where did the kingship come from? We're in 2 Samuel today. If we were to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people come to the prophet Samuel and they ask this. The, the language is important. Give us a king like the nations, like the nations. You see, Israel wants to be like its peer group. It, um, it knows that there's a, there's a respect, there's a power, um, there's a charisma and a, and a, a, to, to having a leader and a king. And Israel doesn't have one. It's got this succession of judges. It doesn't have a throne, you know, and a, and a, and a, and a grand kind of castle and a house for their king. And that's what they ask Samuel for. And the thing, it says, displeases Samuel. And the Lord concedes at this point, but Samuel goes to the people and he says this, this is important. If you get a king over you, he will take your sons and he will put them behind chariots and spears, right? He'll build a standing army. And then he'll take your daughters and they'll put them as maids and as workers and laborers for his throne. And then he'll tax you and he'll put great burdens on you. And then you're going to cry out to the Lord for his help. And I'm telling you this now. And Samuel goes on to say in the, in the prophet that the people did not trust the Lord and they rejected counsel from Samuel. And they said, make us a king so that we may be like the nations. Yeah, the desire 
for kingship, the desire for that one who would provide order, moral order and political order to their society was driven not by what God had desired for them, but by the peer pressures and the social groups and the appearance of the nations around them. And so this is, brings us to Psalm 89 today that we read. And it's a really long psalm. It's um, like 40-something verses, so we don't read it all today, but you could pick it up and read it. It's kind of this um, beautiful, there's a narrative shape to it. It's by, I think, Ethan the Ezraite is the author of this psalm. And it begins with this kind of long buildup that we get in 2 Samuel, the promise to David and his children to this throne. And it just celebrates the Davidic kingship and, and celebrates really that God so loves this throne that he'll oath and he'll make a promise to it that never will his love depart from this house. But then we come in, these, in, the, in the verses, the late 20s to 30s, we come to these verses where God says, but, but if your children disobey, I will discipline them. So this, this promise of love and the covenant that God makes with David's throne comes with an assurance of discipline. That if the kings don't keep justice, he'll discipline them. And in the verses that go on from our reading today, that's precisely what happens is the kings have disobeyed and the author of the psalm is crying out because they're in a place of discipline and exile. How long, O Lord, will you wait, they say. How long? For they've forsaken the Lord and they're doing that thing that Samuel promised. You'll cry out to the Lord because your king will act like the kings of the nations. And you'll want your Yahweh, you'll want your king back again to help you. And this brings us to King David. David, that first royal king, the first kind of beacon of hope for the Israelites. That king of Advent 4 that leads us in to anticipate the Christ. And David, I think, plays two really important parts in this story. The first is that David is like these other kings. He does the very thing that Samuel warns the kings not to do. He builds a standing army. In Deuteronomy, the only law in the whole Pentateuch of Moses, the whole laws of Moses, one law is about the kings, and it's that he will not be like the nations. He won't have a standing army. He won't accumulate gold, and he won't have many wives. And our dear David does all three of those things. He becomes excessively violent at times. He builds up extraordinary wealth in his own house. He has this violent standing army and he accumulates women. And his accumulation of women leads him to deceit. And it leads him to murder Uriah, his soldier, the faithful one. David, in a very short space of time, cannot maintain for himself that view and that desire that we have of kingship. So one thing David does is he warns us in a way, but it's also a sense of sympathy. David's like us. For all the charisma and courage and greatness of David, he's like us. He's a moral failure at times. He fails to do the very thing he wishes to do. And so these kings, these Old Testament characters, there's a reality to them. They're not um, Bible story flannel figure heroes. They're sinners. They're needy of God and of his forgiveness and his help. And we can enter into this story with David because he's a sinner like us. But second, David becomes a model for us. That courage, that charisma, that faith in God 
leads us out of our sin to be more like David. You know, when David sinned against Bathsheba, Nathan the prophet came to him and told him this parable. And I suspect you know that in the midst of this parable, David could have very easily just executed Nathan. He'd done it with others. I mean, David has people executed. Joab, the men of war, they're with David. I mean, David's got the majority on his side. But David repents in the face of Nathan's rebuke, a private rebuke. I mean, that's the entry point for us with David. David is not taken by social peer and social opportunity. David recognizes the confrontation of the Lord and his own failings when it hits him, and he repents. In the book of Psalms, there's actually so, only so many Psalms we would call Psalms of Confession, and most of them are by David. Against ye and thee only have I sinned and done what is evil is in your sight. Uh, elsewhere, remember me not according to my sins and failings, but according to your loving kindness. David confesses his sins again and again. And in all of his Psalms of Confession, this is so interesting, in all of his Psalms of Confession, David asks the Lord to teach him. Teach me your ways. Instruct me in your paths. Make me wise. Your commandments make me wise. They're light to my path. See, when David finds himself in moral failure, and he finds himself acting like the kings around him, he goes to prayer, and he asks the Lord in his spirit to teach him. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me, David says. And then I will teach transgressors your ways. See, David asks to be taught of the Lord. He recognizes his fallibility, and so he comes back bare and humble and says, Lord, teach me your commands. And then he promises to teach. And the primary kind of fruit of that teaching are these psalms that embody for us what it means to live a moral life when we have lived in failure. David invites us into confession to say, Lord, teach me. Lord, forgive me that I am so complicit, that I am so susceptible to being liked by my neighbors, to fitting into peer groups that make me feel good about myself. Forgive me and teach me. David does this for us. He's that model king of all the kings, and it's because of his prayers, his faithfulness, his confession in the midst of failure. Well, today as we close, we're anticipating the coming of Christ who will sit on the throne of David. And our gospel reading is from Luke's gospel, the word of the angel that comes to Mary to tell her that in her womb is one who will sit on the throne of David. Only this isn't merely a descendant of David. He will be born of the Spirit. He'll be God himself. This child who comes to us in Mary, this beautiful child, is like David, a model for us. But what's interesting about Jesus that we should take away in this Advent, in a day of moral fragmentation and rootlessness, is that Jesus doesn't come with a list of moral rules. He has many moral teachings. He comes as a person. He comes as truth. He comes as righteousness. You know, if there's something we're to take away from this, is that we seek to navigate and order ourselves and put our feet right in this world, ethically and morally. We have a person. David had a throne. David had a law. David had a house for the tabernacle of the Lord and for the ark. And we get all of that in the person of Jesus Christ who meets with us, who knows us, who takes on our flesh and sympathizes with us. That's the hope of Advent, 
the moral lawgiver, the one in whom all the right and just and good of this world exists and dwells, is our peer and our helper and our king. He comes to judge. He comes as Nathan to confront us for our failures. But he comes as one lowly. You see, that's the the gift of Advent and Lent. He comes lowly, self-denying, self-humiliating, and on a cross to welcome us into our repentance and then to follow his model of living righteously in the world today. And we give that person to the world, not as a list of moral arguments, though those will happen, but as a person who forgives them and loves them very deeply. That's our challenge this Advent. Meet that Jesus, know him. Confess before him when he comes. And be welcome into his arms as he greets us. Amen.